handling the difficult passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5 of what we call the widow list. 1 Timothy 5 verses really 2 through um, uh, 16 addresses the way the church family will deal with women who are uh, without children, whose lives are are, are long, but whose families are gone. And they don't have anybody to care for them and they, and they become cared for by the entire church family as an official designation. Someone on what Paul says is enrolled. Some have said put on the list. Um, and there's, there's kind of a commitment to it. And we've read through this passage and it's very challenging. And I just want to draw a couple of, uh, of ideas out. We'll, we'll just read through it. And, uh, and we'll, we'll finish uh, today in verse 16. In 1 Timothy 5, 9, a widow will be enrolled under the following conditions, not less than 60 years old, having been a one-man one woman, in good works, being born witness, or someone that there's a reputation she has, that there's a testimony that others, out, uh, besides, you know, uh, besides her and what she says, others say she is a, a worker of God's good. She's brought up children. If she's shown hospitality, if she's washed the saints feet, if those in distress, she has aided. If to do good work, she has devoted herself to do every good work. So this is the ways of describing that she has a reputation for good works. And we said that there are these three, three qualifications for the list Paul is talking about, which is both economic and ministerial. It's not just the, the provision for the poor and the widows, it is more than that. It is our widows are real Christians. Our widows are a product of our church ministry. And so they are cared for by the offerings of our church, like with the pastors, with the elders. So verse nine, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11 and 12 say not for the younger widows. Men die at all ages in all marital situations, but Paul makes two categories, older widows and younger widows. And the age he said was 60, meaning past, don't misunderstand, but past what would generally be considered younger, marriageable, raising children time. It's just, it, it, I don't think it's to be taken as a hard and fast rule. I think he's just saying you've got these two categories that you would make before with marriageable and then after not as, as interested in marriage. And here's what he's talking about. Refuse the younger widows for when they are consumed with sensual desires away from Christ, they will want to marry incurring judgment because the first faith they've nullified. We said there's two interpretations. They've either made a pledge that they would not remarry, that they would just focus on the ministry of the, of the word uh, of prayer in the church. They would focus on the ministry of prayer in the church or, um, or the other view is that, um, that by deviating into personal sin and sexual uh, lust, they're denying their first faith in their actions, like in 1 Corinthians 5. So you have a 1 Corinthians 7 interpretation of it's better not to marry if you're a widow, Paul says, because you can d- devote yourself to the work of the Lord. Or it's a 1 Corinthians 5 thing where it's sexual sin, you're denying the gospel. It's one of those two, and I, I struggle. I, I just have to be perfectly transparent. I try to be dogmatic when I know, when I'm certain of how to take it. But in this survey, I'm taking it that 
the judgment has to do with sin here. It's because of sin. And there's more than just wanting to get married and being consumed with sexual desires. At the same time, also, they will learn to be lazy. So not only are they deviating into sin, but if you've got these younger widows that are struggling with this, and we do struggle with sexual lust, sexual temptation, because we have sexual, legitimate sexual appetites. When, when that becomes a problem, now a woman that is not working for her living, understand, a woman running a household for a husband, a woman working household is working for her living. And I don't mean anything other than it's hard work to keep a house. And if she doesn't have that responsibility, see, we are needy beings. We need responsibility. We don't need handouts. We need labor. We don't need to sit around and someone pay us, uh oh, not to work. We need to, we, we, you know, I think you have hunger because you're supposed to work to feed yourself. And it's very satisfying to do that. One of the best meals I ever had was a fresh kill. I, we, my dad and I, the last time I got to go hunting with him, he made backstrap out of, from, from a deer we had just killed and cleaned. And I know it's better to age it, but hey, we had fresh backstrap that we had processed and he made it in the night in the hunting little cabin, the night we had, he made gravy the way he did. It was the best meal I'd ever had. And I'm not sure if it was just because it's the last time my dad cooked for me, or if it was because we were hungry and we had killed and eaten that day. But my point is there's something awesome about the fact that you satisfy legitimate urges with legitimate means. And the legitimate means here is working with your hands so that you can feed yourself and have Paul says something to share with others. And so this is the problem of the handout. The problem of someone who can work that doesn't, that is supported is that they're, that they have idle, they have idle time. They can just go, they can, they can waste their time. And you're like, well, this is for people that are sinful. This is for people that have, that struggle with lusts, that struggle with, you know, tendencies toward getting into bad habits. This is, this is for those other people that, uh, that have moral problems. And see, this is Christians. This is for every one of us. We all need to set conditions in our lives that protect us from weak moments where we give in to our lusts. We all need to set conditions in our lives that protect us from giving in to lust. And the problem of the sin nature with its temptations isn't going to go away. It's not going to get better. You do not get stronger at it. Your relationship with God grows. Your love for him grows. You become stronger in that sense. But wisdom always dictates, no matter where you are in life, to set conditions for yourself that you not get into bad habits that you not start uh, into areas where you'll be tempted to sin. Young people that are contemplating marriage are best served by inviting their parents to supervise, to know what's going on by not putting themselves into situations where they're, uh, where they're by themselves. And there's the temptation that has an opportunity because you never want God's blessing of marriage to be a personal sin. But it is, as I said last hour, one of God's enemy's greatest areas of attack. He attacks us through sex all through the Bible. And he's doing it here. It talks about it here. These women who are provided for with a handout, but are not devoted to the work. Now they're busybodies and they don't have anybody supervising them except the elders. This is not something you want your pastor to be doing to coming to you and saying, I'm not sure about your moral choices. 
50-year-old woman who's running around with running your mouth. You don't want me to have to do that. More so, I don't want to have to do that. I want your husbands to do that. And so they learn to be lazy going about from house to house, and not only lazy, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things they shouldn't talk about. Therefore, I want young widows to marry, to bear children, to manage house, to give no opportunity to the opponent for the sake of reproach, meaning that the opponent can reproach or revile the body of believers. Because when you have these women that are part of your representation, they're part of the, the, the support that's coming from the church, but they're not living the doctrine that you're teaching. You see, we teach not to gossip, not to judge. You're like, well, but I confessed it. Yeah, the but I confessed it is what is the, the loser. No, you don't want to be the Christian that says, yeah, I'm, I'm given to wantonness as often as I feel like it, but I always confess it. That is a, ba- a baby that will never grow, right? We all struggle with temptation. And when we fall, we need to confess it, but we don't need to live our lives constantly washing our hands while we play with manure. You want to put it aside and then wash. You understand? It is the abuse of the grace of God not to strive to live toward that which pleases God in every choice. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. For God is working in you both to want and to do what pleases him. All right, so this is Paul's attitude towards young widows. Mary, have kids, be a woman, be a wife. Do these things for God. Do these things, rear children to make disciples of them. Be part of his work in his design. And again, every, everywhere you go in the New Testament, it is echoing Proverbs 31. In the Old Testament it doesn't say women can't have careers. It doesn't mean they can't work. It means that their first work for God is discipling in their household. It's, it's managing house. And remember that word for manage house is oikos and despotos. It's the oikos despot, the, the ruler of the house meaning she has been delegated with that management of the house, despot. Here on Memorial Day, we celebrate our freedom, but freedom only exists in the law and the structure of law that restrains our lusts. And oikos despotos, the wife as the household manager, the one who is arranging things. Now, I promised last hour to talk to you about C.S. Lewis a little bit. One of my favorite things that he does in Mere Christianity for a 1940s Great Britain on the radio, that's where that came from, the radio addresses. He explains why traditional Christianity insists that women's lib is a little bit off. He's gentle and light. He's English about this, but he's like women's liberation or the idea of the parity of the sexes in terms of authority that they're, they're, they're identical in authority or interchangeable is, is completely against Christian tradition. Now he's, he's right, but he's weak on that because it's not just against Christian tradition. Lots of things in the tradition are screwed up. That's technical theological language. They're messed up. The reason this Parity of authority or interchangeability between man and woman is wrong is because it's a satanic lie and the scriptures teach us against it. For example, here, the scriptures teach against it. Here's the thing, women and men, you are what God made you and you need to be that. And what that, what that entails involves certain duties and responsibilities. And we don't do them to please the other. We do them to please God. And we need to submit to that. It's very popular today. If you watch popular Christianity, there's, they're having a war in the Southern Baptist over whether women are pastors. And, and they, they scoff when you say husband of one wife, they scoff at you for saying that because they feel called. And so it's the classic argument between the liberals and the fundamentalists. What the evangelicals are is fundamentalists that don't like the label. 
or else they're liberals. But the liberal fundamentalist debate was, is the locus of Christian uh, doctrine and, 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 the, and the faith, is it in you and your inner feelings and experiences, or is it in the word of God? Which one? Pick one. The objective truth of God's word or how you feel led? Because when you feel led contrary to God's word, it is not the spirit of God who has inspired these things. And that's the question of objective uh, truth versus subjective experience. Now, C.S. Lewis, again, and he that is are, are in mere Christianity said that men and women are made differently. And uh, obviously one has a, a one role and the other has another role. And there's, so there's the headship and the body of, uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, the headship is the husband, the body is the wife. So there's, a, there's a, a differential in authority there. It's by God's design. I call it a divine institution from Genesis 2. It is a divine institution of authority. So what are we saying? Does it make women less? No. Does it make women stupid? No. Does it make women subservient? No. No, it means that there is a complementarian relationship between husband and wife. We have a leader and a follower, a, an initiator and a responder, and a, a man given work and a help meet in Genesis chapter two. That's the pattern. Okay, that's the pattern. So the woman leading is historically, biblically a problem because passive men, because the woman leading is not receiving the leadership that she is designed to receive. And you need to step up and become more assertive. But a woman who helps you see that, hey, you're not leading, that's a helpmeet helping you. If she's like, I need a little, you know, get out there. Could you please go and do something? I can't ski behind this boat. I'm leading the boat. That's not how it works. Now, C.S. Lewis said, here's the great illustration. If a person's, if a neighbor's dog bites a child, common experience. Somebody's dog bites somebody on the hand. That's a grieve. That's a grievance. But now we're outside the households. If a person's dog bites another, bites a neighbor's child, who do you want to resolve it? The wives or the husbands? And C.S. Lewis wrote this as an obvious settled fact. Now this is 70 years ago. So today we're like, I don't really know. Judge Judy, like, what should we do? C.S. Lewis said, obviously, you want the husbands to resolve it. And ladies, why? Because they're going to seek peace. They're going to be more lenient. They're going to say something like these things happen. And they're going to make peace because if they don't make peace, they're going to hit each other's heads off because they're big and strong and filled with testosterone. And once they get angry, there is no more reason. There is just rage. And that's how we're made. Now, not to sin, but I'm just saying we're made to fight. And women, according apparently to C.S. Lewis's model, notice how I'm standing behind him a little bit, but I think he's right. Women are more made to insist. Thank you for not amening out loud, guys. I heard, I felt it, but I know you didn't. Women are more made to insist and insist on what? Well, if they're the house despot, then they've got to keep the babies alive. They have to say, no, you can't put that doorway there. The baby will fall out. And the guy's like, oh, well, that would have been a lot easier to carry groceries. But I mean, I get what you're saying. Okay. They insist because they're designed to manage. And that's, again, I think women tend to be, and I love you for it. I think it's God's design with your different brain, the way God made it. I think you're made to be more insistent and more particular about things. And men are generally able to let a little stuff slide. Amen. There you amen now. Amen. <laughs> Now, if you're a more particular man, I'm not saying you're womanish. 
Okay, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that men are known to shower, for example, less often than they probably should if women aren't around. You can say, oh no, when I'm by myself, I shower all the time. I'm talking about the mining camp or the hunting camp or the group of guys on the tanks that there's no easy showers to get to and they just kind of deal with it. I was told once by a senior non-commissioned officer when he was training me at Fort Knox in the armor school that you will wash yourself. He was, I think he was from Kentucky or South Carolina or some, let's do South Carolina. I think he said, you will wash yourself because at some point you will have to wash yourself. But, but there becomes a time when you're so dirty that you have to get clean. Now, ladies, some of you are like, I can't imagine a time when that would be like you would wash every day. You would wash every, every moment, every chance you can, because we're going to be clean. But men will get to the point on the tank where someone forces them to take a bath on the back deck with, a, with a, a, a can of water, with a canteen. Because there's no showers, but you got to get clean. I'm just saying men and women are different. And if you're a grungy lady and you like to be dirty until someone forces you to get a shower, okay. But, <laughs> but I don't know many of you. I don't know many women like that. I know, I know women that want to be clean and sanitary and 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 so guys thank god for them we are clean uh, we 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 bathe like they do i mean as much and it's good thank god we do it's uh stinky when you don't got teenagers well now i have a teenager at home and uh when you got more than one boy in a room you go in there after you've been sleeping for a while <laughs> and you're like well they would never do laundry right but mom is gonna make them do laundry because, so I'm just saying women are more particular and that, and otherwise we're just dirty and nasty. And that's how God made us in terms of the, the, the specifics of what we're worried about. And we complement each other. And so when your house is clean and I come over and I'm not coming to inspect your, your house scheme and come over to love on you. But if I come over and your house is clean, I know there's a householder. I know there's somebody that is a uh, uh, Oikos despot who is making it happen. And I always try to compliment that because I know from watching how hard that is. I try to help too. I try. I've done dishes once in a while. Jeff Foxworthy says that we'll blow the trumpet when we do the dishes. I did them. I did the dishes. And she's like, great. That was one of the 15 things. I got the other 14. Don't worry about it. They never blow the trumpet. All right, so men and women are different. And so that difference is playing into Paul's advice here. That um, if you have work, if you have work that keeps you busy, that you're designed for, then you're happier. And if you don't have work, if all of a sudden the pressure's off, then it can go into a, a, into a death. Last illustration of that principle. When I was uh, going from ninth grade to 10th grade, I had a crisis. I had the hardest summer of my life going from ninth grade to 10th grade. You know, there's a hormonal thing going on kids are growing up. I had gone from a uh, total self pressure where I had to make as many grade point average points as I could freshman year. Cause I'm not that smart. And to get into one of these academies, I'm really going to have to do it academically. Cause I'm not real good on sports either. So I was like trying to, trying to make hundreds on everything all through freshman year. So I was really driven. My mother was a teacher there. She would see me in the hallway and say, you need to chill out. 
She called me Big Chief Thunderclap because I would walk through the halls, you know, and I was, I was, but I wasn't mad or upset. I was always focused on the next responsibility, the next assignment. And I was trying to give up as, as few points as I could because again, school gets harder. And when kids wake up that they have to actually buckle down and study, I already needed to be far enough ahead of them in terms of the contest. That's how I was the valedictorian in my class was freshman and sophomore years. If you're interested in getting to a service academy, get a valedictory or sal salutatorian of your class do all your homework and, and make, make hundreds on everything you can and, uh, and, and then start a club or join the clubs and you can get in, but, but it's largely academics. And so again, I wasn't the smartest, but I did all that work. And so when summer came, I was done. I had nothing else. The pressure was off. And at first it was kind of euphoric. And I don't know when euphoria gave way to, to depression but I got into the worst funk I've ever been in. When people say they're clinically depressed, I'll never doubt it. I'll never dispute with them that there's something going on because whether it was just chemically or situationally, I was done. I was desperate. I was in despair and I couldn't explain it. I was listening to my Bible tapes. I was studying. I was reading my Bible. I was praying. I just did not feel like persisting in this, in this life. And, I, and I'm certain in, in retrospect, and God saved me from it. He did. I prayed about it and, I, and I'm sure we got to work. We, got, we had things we had to do that summer, but it was my idleness. It was that I had gone from that pressure where I had a job and my job was to give up as few points as possible in my, in my academic scores. I'd gone from that to no pressure. And it was, it was devastating. And so I, I think that's how retirement works a lot of times. You've ever heard of those hardworking uh, dads and grandpas that, that finally retire at 80 and then die at 82? You know what I mean? Like that's how my grandfather went. Now he died of cancer. And so, but, but, but you know, there's this thing where when you stop uh, working, that's it. And I don't think that that means, guys, you don't retire from your career. I think it means you never see yourself as retired. There's always work. There's always the work of God. There's always what Paul describes of the ladies in, uh, in verse, uh, what is it, five, where they're devoting themselves to prayer night and day. For already some of these women have turned away after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, they are to help them and the church not be burdened so that it may help the widows indeed. So the picture throughout this book of First Timothy is that the church is a household and you have household responsibilities. If any of you were in this church multi-generationally and something happened to you, but your parents were still here. Like you're on one of those, uh, you know, God perfectly timed, but to us freak accidents where you die and your family is, you know, you and your wife go and your, your parents are still here. That's the situation we're in where the person's in the church, they're part of the church family and their kids are no longer available. This church family, like Paul is telling the Ephesians, this church family will provide for your parents. We will consider it our duty as the household of the faith. Widows and orphans are not widows and orphans in this family. They have people. They have, orphans have parents available to them. Widows have children who can provide for them. That's the idea that Paul is presenting. Now compare that with your culture. Compare that with the world we live in where everything is a federal program, where everything is cut as, as by a check or a social worker, and there's no Christ. There's no love of Christ. There's no power of the Holy Spirit unless you happen to get a Christian social worker who can't really talk about in their professional thing the thing that motivates them to do what they do. It's a very different paradigm. 
Again, as we progress as our culture, we're progressing away from God, away from the cross. But we will continue to bear witness for Christ and how we take care of our elderly. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because I want you to take a moment of clarity and honesty before I close in prayer about the cross of Jesus Christ. It may be that you've heard it a hundred times and you've never actually trusted in Jesus as your savior. It may be that this is the first time you're hearing me make this appeal and I never know where you are with God. Please understand that when God so loved the world, he's speaking of you. And when Jesus is the savior of the world, that is speaking of you. And what Jesus did to save us is die for our sins on the cross. Our sins were applied to Jesus Christ and judged in him. That is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He suffered the wrath of God on your sins. I believe in Jesus Christ as my savior, the one who died to pay for my sins. See, the problem with us is we're separated from God because he's perfectly righteous and our sins are repudiation of that righteousness. And that's death. That is separation from God. Jesus suffered the wrath of God that abides on your sins at the cross. You could say, well, but what about, what about those that don't believe? They are still in their trespasses and sins. But when you trust in Christ, you are now in Christ. The basis for God's judgment on you is having been offered a relationship with God through the universal offer of the gospel and having rejected that offer, God's wrath abides. God's wrath abides. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. For God did not send the, world, the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. There it is, beloved. He who believes in Christ is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Beloved, this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. It's a very simple thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. What about repentance? It is the change of your mind about your need for a Savior. It is the recognition that there's nothing you can do about your sins, but your sins are a blight. They are a, they, they, they are a stain on God's creation. He's going to remove the stain. He's paid for your sins in Christ. You need to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Father, we thank you for this atonement provided through the blood of Christ. Thank you for all of us who have received the benefit of this in the redemption. Father, those of our family and friends who haven't received this, the list of those among us that we know that haven't received Christ, Father, save them. Open the door that they may be prepared to hear the gospel, that, that you can send someone to share it with them, that if it's a long conversation over many years or a short visit with just the right moment and the right arrangement, make those arrangements, Father, for our loved ones are perishing and they need Christ. 
Father, we ask you to save them in Jesus' name. Amen.